Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. Thanks, Mary. Love Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatments. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Welcome to the show. Hi, Diane. Oh, I'm sorry. Here. I think we lost her. I'm going to try to give her a call back. Okay. No problem. You know what, Marianne? I'm going We're to on go the ahead air. And... Diane, is Rebecca on with us? She is. Hi, okay. Let me try to get her. Maybe you guys can just uh, talk a little bit about the show tonight, and I'll be right back. Absolutely. Let's just do that. Um, I'd love to talk about the show tonight. We have Dr. Silverman. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty, but we are going to be talking tonight about her brand new book, Giftedness 101. Dr. Silverman is um, a world-renowned gifted expert. We've had her on the program before. I think that's her coming back to us now. Hello. Hi, Hello? Dr. Silverman. Hi. Are you there? 
Hi, I'm there. I tried picking up and I couldn't hear anything. Well, we were having some kind of technical difficulty, but we are so glad that you're with us tonight. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to be here, too. I'm sorry that I couldn't ring in sooner. I just was having some trouble with my phone. Oh, that's okay. We've um, we've mastered the technical difficulty, I think, and I was just getting ready to um, talk a little bit about your book and to uh, tell tell our listeners what our program is going to be about tonight. Great. So, Did you get a copy? We did get a copy, we and we've we've both been devouring it. Um, <laughs> Rebecca is with us tonight. Becky? Hi, Becky. Hi, Linda. How are you? How are you feeling? I'm doing well, and my daughter's better. Oh, I hated missing you in Denver, but it's so good to talk to you tonight. I'm well, so we missed you, too. Oh, I'm so excited about this book. I couldn't put it down last night when I Thank got it. you. You know, you're the so. first people I'm hearing from. Well, we oh, Linda, we we are so excited, and we've got some great questions for you tonight about the book. And one quick Excellent. thing I, I want I I need to uh, mention here before we get started, ladies, is about our sponsor. We have a sponsor, and that's Mayor Johnson. They're at how uh, nice mayorjohnson.com, and with every child, there is a solution. Um, they explore a variety of educational solutions at mayorjohnson.com. And um, during the month of January, you can save 20% by using their promo code SOLUTION20 at the checkout. So we want to make sure that we give credit to them. We thank them for sponsoring tonight. Um, I know that they're Well, I thank them, well. too. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. We are so glad to have you here tonight, Linda. We're going to be talking about um, several things to do with your book tonight, about the many myths surrounding the concept of giftedness, about the comprehensive methods of assessment, which, of course, is, is where um, a great piece of your expertise lies, along with all of your rich wisdom that we can share. And Thank you. We're going to talk tonight about uh, parental and educational roles in developing the abilities of the gifted children. And one topic that um, I can't wait to get to and that I found in the book as well as Becky, the importance, and I'd like our listeners, both parents and professionals, to listen up tonight because your book really covers something that other books don't cover, and that's the Mm -hmm. unique psychological needs of the gifted children. Yes. Well, thank you. That's my whole purpose for writing it. I wanted there to be a psychology of giftedness. And so far, what we're seeing more is a psychology of eminence. And that's a whole different story to me than giftedness, than what we see in children. There's no real way for us to tell who's going to be famous. And it really doesn't impact decisions that we make as parents or as teachers. That's right. That's right. And we, and actually, um, if you could tell us a little bit more, as you said, the whole reason for writing it, writing it, give us a little more background. We know a lot of work went into this, and and as we mentioned, Linda, you are a world-renowned expert on giftedness. You have been at this for a while. Uh, you've been the director of <laughs> the Gifted years. Center. Fifty years. It's been my passion, oh. my entire life. It's actually more than 50 years because I began to be interested in the gifted when I was still in high school. So I, I've spent my entire life interested and passionate about this topic. Um, but I, I actually came into psychology rather late. I started out 
as a teacher, and when I was even three years old, all I wanted to be was a mommy and a teacher, and that's what I, where my first love was, and um, I, I became a psychologist after um, I was kind of drawn kicking and screaming uh, into graduate school by one of the uh, teachers that I was substituting for. And she introduced me to Leo Biscaglia, who uh, some of you might remember as the the professor who wrote all about love. He was yeah. the he and he was my advisor, and I I got my degree in edge psych and special education. And then when I came out to Colorado, I decided that I really needed to become a psychologist and to be able to work more closely with individuals who have learning differences in both directions and in any direction, really, because there are so many combinations of learning differences. So um, I, when I got into the field of psychology, I was shocked that nobody in psychology seemed to be interested in the gifted. There was no division of the American Psychological Association on giftedness. When I would get my um, newsletters from the state association, the Colorado Association, it would ask, what is your special interest? And gifted was never among the possibilities. And I began to believe that giftedness was not considered a, a psychological issue. It was considered an educational one. So the journals were about the education of the gifted rather than the psychology of giftedness, which was very confusing to me. Um, I, um, I am an educator. I believe in education. But I also think that there's something different in the wiring of gifted people and that you begin to see that difference when they're very young, way before school age. And that parents have the major responsibility of uh, identifying the differences in their children and figuring out what to do well before they ever go to school. So for me, giftedness is a 24-7 lifelong situation. And parents are number one responsible for the 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 optimal development of their children. And we understand this when we're talking about children at the other end of the spectrum. But we don't seem to get that giftedness is simply the opposite end of the same coin. It's the parent's responsibility from birth to the time when the parents aren't on the earth anymore. 24-7. That's right. And what, what I really like, the way that you bring this up that it's almost like as you're looking at debunking these myths, Linda, one thing that you do is you let your readers see how much these myths have um, just stood in the way of our understanding giftedness as the opposite end of this spectrum, understanding that children who are gifted deserve and have just as much right to access all of the services that they need, psychological and educational, as children who are challenged. And um, 
And that's not to say that gifted children aren't challenged. You bring that up and make that very clear as well. Um, it's just a wonderful way that you've you've made a very complex issue uh, so much more clear and comprehensive than I've, I've ever seen it um, written about. Oh, thank you so much, Becky. And I just um, I, I learned a great deal. And one thing that struck me was when I can't find the page number right now, but you do mention how gifted was left to the domain of curricular design rather than in the field of psychology. And that's one thing we bring up in our book is that in most assessments, giftedness is not something that um, psychologists and psychiatrists look at when they're doing an evaluation. And They're not it, given any not, training. No. And no, so when you bring a gifted child in for some other kind of assessment, they're not understanding that giftedness is a part of the mix. It must be looked at as a part of your diagnostic picture of this individual. When you look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, what you find is that there's a caveat at the bottom of so many different diagnoses that says not attributable to mental retardation. So there's an appreciation within the field of psychology that if you're at one end of the spectrum, you can have certain uh, behaviors that might mimic another diagnostic disorder, but that are part of the experience of being intellectually disabled. What we don't get is that the same thing is true in the gifted range. You can have what may appear to others as obsessive interests, and that may look like obsessive compulsive disorder, which is typical of gifted kids. Mm-hmm. Because they perseverate in their area of interest. And well, they're, they will focus completely in their yeah. areas of interest if you yeah. let them. That's, That's right. what homeschooling parents do. They follow the lead of their children. And if, if I can go back for just one second, Linda, and ask you, Dr. Silverman, about... Linda. Linda, okay. We'll, we'll be informal tonight. <laughs> um, the, the myths surrounding giftedness, there's so many of them, and this is part of the, part of the, the problem as well, is people not understanding what giftedness is and isn't. Can you give us a few examples of the danger of the myths surrounding giftedness? Well, as I mentioned in the book, they they arose in two stages. There are some that are extremely ancient, and these have to do with the belief that everyone is really of equal intelligence, and that if you uh, try to give one child too much stimulation, that child is going to die young or is going to be uh, they have their brain used up by the time they're 15, or children who are prodigies are going to be all washed out before they hit adulthood. So this early ripe, early rot perspective or genius equals madness, um, they're still floating around today in different forms. There is a whole society that believes that Creative people are mad, are crazy, 
and they do workshops all over the world because they've made that connection and they believe it to be true regardless of anything. Um, this, the next set of myths are what I call the new myths are uh, excuses for negligence. They're things like, oh, it doesn't matter if she's reading early. By third grade, they, they all catch up. But that's just patent nonsense. The only way they can all catch up is if you take a sledgehammer and, and beat up the left hemispheres of every gifted kid in school so that they're, you know, no longer able to function. And then maybe it'll look like they're, they're at the same level. But the analogy that I use is of an old computer. If, if, if you ever had one of the very first computers, like the Radio Shack ones, do you remember <laughs> what mm-hmm. those were like? The, Com- the Commodores. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The Commodore, that's a perfect example. So you take a Commodore. Let's say you held on to it. And in 2012, you bought yourself a new computer. So the question becomes, how can you make the new computer and the Commodore look like they're equal, that they, they're just the same and that the 2012 computer isn't any better at all in any way than the Commodore. And the only way I can think of is not to turn it on because 2012's computer is a more efficient, faster more uh, sophisticated organization system that processes an enormous amount of material, has a phenomenal memory, and learns at a rapid rate, whereas the Commodore was much, much slower, had a very small memory capacity, was not organized in a sophisticated way. And this is a good analogy for the difference between the information processing system and a gifted, particularly a highly gifted mind, and an average mind. They are not processing the same pace, rate, amount of information. They're not storing it the same way. They're not retrieving it the same way. The memory capacity is not the same. How on earth? Uh, is the average one going to catch up to the gifted one by third grade? How is that possible? That's as possible as the Commodore being as efficient as your 2012 computer. Now, there's a lot of other myths. Uh, all parents think their children are gifted. Uh, is a demeaning, uh, dismissive, degrading comment for an administrator to say to a parent, and no administrator would say, all our children are intellectually disabled. It just takes all the meaning away from it. There's a lot of those floating around that we feel perfectly comfortable saying and don't realize that they are sheer bigotry and discrimination against one group of the population. And one thing I really like and uh, just totally respect about your approach to these myths and to the subject of giftedness is how diverse your approach is. 
in terms of exploring it from a variety of of perspectives. You look at it racially. You look at it in terms of socioeconomics. You look in terms of gender. You you don't let anything. Um, you look at it in terms of of how it's been weighted toward male Caucasians for the long. So you look at the the subject of giftedness and how these these myths have emerged, and you look at it um, just through the lens of diversity. And I think that's something that so many readers, parents, and professionals alike will appreciate. I know as an educator, diversity is becoming a really big issue in the field. And um, I think it's important that we recognize that giftedness as a, a psychological profile, if you will, which um, can't be well defined because everyone's so individual, but as a profile, it does. It, it doesn't belong to one group or the other, but that at the same time, all groups of, of gifted individuals are discriminated against. And I think. Well, that, I appreciate that, Becky. I I hope you're right. It certainly um, resonates with what I believe, but there is some controversy around that attitude, and here is where it comes from. There are people. Uh, a very large group of professionals who do not believe in IQ tests. They believe that IQ tests are basically discriminatory against other groups. And so if you use IQ tests, then that group says you're, you're not only not being politically correct, but you're discriminating against all these groups that can't possibly get high IQ scores. So what we should use instead is uh, a talent development approach where we give mm -hmm. really good education to all children, and then you foster the talents of those who are going to become eminent. And their reasons for, for taking that position are because they feel very deeply and strongly that that is a better way to find the gifts and talents of culturally diverse, ethnically diverse, economically uh, disadvantaged uh, groups of individuals in, in the United States and in the world. But uh, my issue with this is that, number one, it, it is extremely difficult for culturally diverse women, socioeconomically disadvantaged individuals, to attain eminence. Eminence is usually a Caucasian male phenomenon. It's not something that's equally available to people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, period. It takes a lot of uh, abundance financially to be able to support someone to the point where they achieve eminence. And women have a very poor opportunity, I consider it to be a, a white male game eminence. So um, the second issue that I have is that if we really believed that we could find gifted children very young in uh, economically disadvantaged groups, in ethnically diverse groups, then we would give IQ tests to very young children. We would find those kids with higher abstract reasoning, with advanced development. We would 
nurture that ability and it would blossom. But if we're going to say, oh, no, we can't use IQ tests anymore, we can't even begin to find these children until they're in fourth or fifth or sixth grade, then that critical opportunity to find talent, to find ability in culturally diverse groups is lost. And those, that, those talents are permanently lost because once they get into a pattern of underachievement, it's very difficult to reverse it. Mm-hmm. So my attitude about how to serve culturally diverse diametrically opposed to those who think that they're supporting the gifted among the culturally diverse. Mine is to IQ test, to find them in preschool, find them in early childhood, find them early and support early intervention. And it's a, it, it, we're, we're both interested in the culturally diverse, but we're coming at it from completely different ideas about the value of IQ tests. And again, going back to the opposite ends of the spectrum, in no way, shape, or form would most people tolerate a child with intellectual disability, any services being withheld until we could really identify them in the fourth and fifth grade and see where they are. That's exactly where I'm coming from. I think it's because I have a special ed background that I've always seen that what we do at one end of the spectrum is what we should be thinking about doing at the other end of the spectrum. And I think about how we identify kids for gifted programs, the, the group tests that we use, with the low ceilings and grades and teacher judgment. And I think, what if you tried for one day to use this set of criteria or a similar set to find intellectually disabled kids in your school? You'd be in court within the day. Oh, yes. It would be so obviously inappropriate. Well, and at no point would anyone say, well, what's good for them is good for everyone. Um, right. It, it was right. Easy, but that's the, that's one of the myths you challenge as well about the gifted, is that the approach is, you know, if it's good if it's good for them, it's good for everyone. And that drives me nuts. Yes, because again, because my feeling is exactly the opposite. If it's good for everyone, then it obviously isn't sophisticated enough, abstract enough, paced at a fast enough level, it isn't differentiated for the gifted. Anything that's good for everybody is not gifted curriculum. No, I I, I agree. And there there is nothing more frustrating as an educator to, to be in a classroom and be over your limit <laughs> as a teacher and know that you have two exceptionally gifted students, one or two, and really the best you can do is enrichment because gifted programming just, while it claims to exist, I I have yet to really see, and it just in my public area, um, with the exception of a few gifted and talented magnet programs that, that we're really serving the needs of, of a much larger population. I think that's something else, is if we were to start testing young, like you say, 
we would find that there are more gifted people than probably most people recognize. Oh, there are millions of them. And the whole point of the first chapter is the vast majority of the gifted, the vast majority is invisible. You don't know because it's so not okay to be gifted that most are in hiding. Well, and and if you if you think about just the language you used a couple of minutes ago when you said it wouldn't be sophisticated enough, it wouldn't be advanced enough or profoundly gifted, um, people take that as cockiness and arrogance when it's simply a statement of need and fact for this population. It's it's not saying anyone's better. It's saying this is a need that they have because... Well, again, if we use the opposite end of the spectrum, and I like to use the normal curve as an example, when you go two standard deviations below average, you're talking about kids who take longer to learn. Sometimes they're called slow learners because you have to go over and over and over some of the same material in order for it to stick. If you go two standard deviations above the norm, they're going to learn it in half the time, a quarter of the time that it takes the other students to learn. What is gained in the name of democracy by allowing a child who's already learned a concept to sit in class, bored, while the teacher goes over and over and over material that they've already mastered? Who gains from this? How does this serve anybody? And another point that you bring up in terms of serving people is that for some reason society believes that if an individual is gifted and receives recognition as being gifted, they have a responsibility to our society in some way because this endowment, if you will, has been recognized. And I think that that's an important point that we're talking about individuals here and not every gifted individual will become eminent. In fact, most of them will not. And like you say, most eminent individuals are not profoundly gifted. And um, it's, it's just this idea that the gifted population owes something to society it's also a myth that I, I think you take great care to to look at and say, you know, again, this is an injustice to expect that one group I call it the utilitarian view of giftedness. What have you done for me lately? What are you going to do for society? How are you going to give back? You got this gift. Now you owe us something. This is not the kind of um, indebtedness that we place on any other special needs group. In fact, my statement that I think is probably pretty controversial is that what we give in special education is inversely related to what we expect the individual to be able to give back to society. So we will fund a person who seems to be so disabled 
that they will not contribute. And if we feel that someone has the capacity to contribute, they aren't deserving of funding. Mm-hmm. So our our funding laws are inversely proportional to whatever contribution is expected. It doesn't seem fair to me at all that any expectation should be placed on gifted children to give back. I think all kids should learn to give back. I don't think this is a special obligation of the gifted. I think all children should be involved in service learning, but not just gifted kids. Mm -hmm. And I think that gifted is a special needs group, just like autistic, learning disabled, dyslexic, intellectually disabled, and that if we recognize them as a special needs group, we give them an education that's commensurate with special needs. Well, and what's so interesting is it does fall under the special education umbrella, but people don't see it as a special need, if you will. Um, and, and that's something that has always just floored me. When when I hear a special ed teacher say, well, he should know to behave better, his IQ is over 130, and She's talking about a child who's labeled with a behavioral disorder when probably his behavior is really an expression of giftedness, and she's calling out the fact that he should behave better because he's, his IQ is higher. She's not really recognizing giftedness as a psychology, as a psychological profile. She's just seeing it as intellect. And That's I why I'd like to get the whole field focused on psychology rather than general education. If gifted is a special needs group and there's some psychological implications of giftedness, then we can begin to look at combinations, which the two of you are very familiar with. When you're in special education, there are some kids who are just one diagnosis. But a great many children have a combination of diagnoses. And giftedness as a diagnosis, as a psychological diagnosis, can coexist with being in a wheelchair, Mm -hmm. having cerebral palsy, having dyslexia, having behavioral disorder, being manic depressive, having vision issues, having auditory issues, having ADHD, and it can exist with a number of different types of of unique um, learning styles and disabilities. So giftedness is perceived totally different if you're looking at it as just how does this child achieve in school, and what is this child's potential for being famous in adult life, and what talents does this child have that we want to develop versus this is a diagnostic reality. This is a kid who has different learning needs, and along with that may come a different learning style. There may be hidden learning disabilities. There may be other things that need to be uh, 
looked at, and I know that I'm preaching to the choir here because you wrote the book, Bright But Not Broken, which is all about that. Well, you're thank you for that, Linda, and and yeah. you are right. We, I mean, we totally agree with what you're saying. And as I'm as I'm listening to this, just such importance and such awareness needs to be given to what we all have come to call the twice exceptional population, because mm-hmm. you're right. There, um, there just isn't enough awareness. It it is it tends to fall into the you know you've you've got enough going on to be able to compensate really is what it boils down to and that's just not leaving any room for exploring the person's um uniqueness and and their challenges as well as their gifts instead of making their gifts do the work of their challenges i guess is what is the expectation i think Well, compensation I'm finding, and it it took me a long time to get here because I never learned any of this in in my special education graduate program. Compensation is not something you can count on. It breaks down at different ages. It breaks down in new situations. It breaks down when you're tired. You don't compensate well when you're dieting. You don't compensate well when you've broken up with your boyfriend. You don't compensate well when your best friend is is mad at you. And compensation is not this once you compensate, it's there forever. It's a sometimes thing. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And that's one of the things that I think is so punitive that twice exceptional children are able to compensate in some situations with some teachers on some days. And then when they can, that's held as the expectation of what they should be able to do all the time. And when they fall short of what they can do on a good day, they're hollered at. They're called lazy. The people say you're not trying. And they don't get the compensation isn't always available. That's right. No, and a lot of times I think when a teacher or even a parent sees a child achieve something once or twice because of compensatory skills, um, looking at development, the, the expectation is you will grow into this and be able to do it all the time. And when Not true. Never, exactly. And when it doesn't occur, we start hurling ugly labels and attaching ugly judgments to, to people who are really just doing the best that they can at any given moment. And, um, and we don't understand that they're trying as hard as they can. We don't get that. We are not aware that twice exceptional individuals of any age have good days and bad days. <clears throat> and what you can do on a good day when the stars are aligned and you've had a lot of sleep and Nothing is going wrong with you emotionally, and you're not in a new situation, and you've had a lot of practice in this one particular skill, and you're comfortable. What you can do in that situation could be very different the next day when you haven't slept well or when you are are just off. Everyone has good days and bad days, but for twice exceptional, it's disastrous. 
And one of the most disastrous pieces of it that I've found as a psychologist is that twice exceptional individuals, adults as well as children, judge themselves on the basis of their bad days and say, this is all I'm capable of. And on their good days, they say, oh, I'm just faking it. They don't believe that they have that capability. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And speaking of that point, can you tell us, Linda, what are some of the things that parents or educators can do to develop the abilities of these children to help them with the confidence in what they have so that they are more... Um, so their self-esteem is, is not quite as bruised when they know that they can excel at certain things. What can we do to help? The, the number one intervention that I've found over the years is a keyboard. The worst, the worst impact of twice exceptionality is the inability to write with handwriting as much, as fast, and as comprehensive as you can think it. If these kids are allowed to use a keyboard and taught to touch type from even before they go to school with all these typing tutorials, if they're allowed to do their assignments on a keyboard and after a year of trying, if they can't master a keyboard, being allowed to dictate their work, mm-hmm. either using uh, software like Dragon Naturally Speaking or dictating to a parent, dictating to a scribe, dictating to a teacher's assistant. That is one of the most painful parts of being twice exceptional, twice exceptional is being judged on the basis of what you can write when these kids have such a difficult time. And a second intervention is that a lot of twice exceptional kids are easily overstimulated. And they need to have a place to retreat. Not a place that they're sent to, but a place that they're allowed to choose to go in the classroom. Maybe put on a headset. Maybe listen to soft music or anything that calms them down. Because they, in order to compensate, they wear out. They are really fatigued. They're wearing out their adrenals. They're, they're trying to do everything on, on adrenaline. Their, their eyes are getting fatigued. Their auditory system is getting fatigued. They get emotionally drained. And they need time out from all the stimulation. They need to be allowed to, to, on their own, before they have a meltdown, say, I need a break, and be allowed to take it. I think a lot of them need movement. They need to be allowed to get up and walk around the classroom every half hour, go on an errand, use a fidget, sit on an um, exercise ball or a therapeutic cushion, but movement is part of their learning. I think there should be rocking chairs in every classroom because there's a lot of kids who learn better when they have that vestibular stimulation. And I think we have to honor that accommodations 
for twice exceptional children are not special privileges. They really do need these accommodations to show people what they're capable of. So a Section 504 plan is essential, and it needs to be implemented. Whatever is on there, if that child needs to have audio books or to have their text read to them, that should be allowed. If they need a private room to take tests, that should be allowed. If they need more time to do their classroom assignments or more time for standardized tests, that shouldn't be looked at as some special privilege. Those are real, absolute, essential uh, qualities for their for success in the pro- in their school programs. Well, as you were talking, I couldn't help but get think you um, all of these things are in the classroom and things that these children need. But getting back to the idea of testing, psychological testing um, early on, because we, as you know, um, and you know my feelings about RTI and the, just the immense danger that it poses to this particular population. I think it's going to be even more of a challenge using RTI to identify gifted so that, you know, even 504 isn't going to serve our twice exceptional. I mean, these these kids are going to have a time being identified so that they can get some recognition of something. Do you agree or totally agree? We're working very hard to um get the people who came up with the RTI legislation to write um caveats about the need for comprehensive assessment and to recognize that uh that RTI is insufficient. It may be okay for kids who are reading slightly below grade level to have reading interventions in the classroom. But when we're talking about auditory processing, visual processing, sensory processing, ADHD, autism, Asperger's, um, dyslexia, we're, we're not talking about anything that RTI is capable of dealing with. And giftedness was never... Mm-hmm. Never a consideration in the in the original RTI legislation. So to have it applied to gifted and twice exceptional children is inappropriate. It doesn't do the job for them. They're going to be lost if that's all that's available to them. Oh, well, and I just think teachers are ill-equipped to deal with that in the classroom either. They unless, have no training. Right, exactly. Unless the special they, they pursued a special education degree, even then it takes so much time. And in a regular-sized classroom where we have all abilities and all competencies represented, it's a real challenge. And the twice exceptional or the silent gifted in many cases Oh, I like that, the silent gifted. And they're the ones who who will remain unidentified or because they don't stir up controversy. I'm going to quote you, the silent gifted. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) They 
they're going to be the ones again who who are just missed. Um, and it just absolutely. Um, and I think of them. You say early in your book, you're talking about um, Dr. Hollenworth and her work, and um, just you talk about how concerned she was about their social, emotional, net and educational worlds, um, just their unhuman development. And then one thing that you brought out is how concerned she would was that they would survive to adulthood. And that just resonated with me because it drove the point home that we're not talking strictly about intellectual ability or talents in a classroom, but we are talking about a whole spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical being here. And we are only looking at one little piece of the puzzle, and RTI doesn't even look at that whole piece. So it just, you know, when when I was reading about Dr. Hollingworth, it just made me think of all the profiles of all the many beautiful children in my classroom who have a wide range of abilities, but who who remain um, just stuck because of the systems that they have to operate in and that we have to operate in. And well, I, you skirted around a very deep and important issue, and that is survival. Yes. We don't know that all of our gifted children or our twice exceptional children will make it to adulthood. Their lives are tormented very often by other kids teasing them, bullying them, teachers making fun of them, uh, feelings of shame for what they can't do, feelings of shame for being different. And this takes an emotional toll. And I, in, in my career, I've seen some kids who didn't make it. And the emotional toll of losing one of these kids is beyond belief. I don't care which of them become eminent, but I do care which ones of them commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Linda, you have been just a wealth of information for us tonight, and we are excited to help promote your book and to let Thank others you. know it's here. Please tell us if there's anything we haven't covered, um, an important point, something about the book you would like our listeners to know about. Well, I'm so delighted that you brought up Lita Hollingworth. That just lit my lights. <laughs> she was my matron saint she was a psychologist. She was the first psychologist of the gifted. And I would so like to see her work remembered for people to go back and study what Lita Hollingworth had to share. I've tried to put as much of her work in my book as I can because I want people to go back and rediscover Lita Hollingworth think she got the essence of what giftedness was and what it is. And I just feel that to in many respects I'm just carrying on her work. She um she passed away before I was born. Uh she passed away in nineteen thirty nine. 
uh, two years before I was born, and yet I feel as if she's been my mentor my whole life. And she was a strong believer in if we want to find these children, we have to find them through IQ tests. And she was one of the first users of IQ tests and the first to discover profoundly gifted children and to study them and find out what their issues were. And she was the first one to write a book on twice exceptional children and to recognize what those issues were all about. So I I thank you for for realizing how important she is to the field. And I've, um, I've got some things in the book about optimal development at home and mm-hmm. optimal development at the school in schools and a whole chapter on comprehensive assessment with some new ideas about um the extended norms um new nomenclature um uh, uh, there's quite a bit of specific information in the book for psychologists and for people who test gifted children But there's also a great deal of information for teachers and for parents. Mm -hmm. So um, I just want to mention that the first time I'll be speaking about Giftedness 101 to a large audience is at the Nebraska uh, State Conference on February 28th and March 1st. And... um, Graduate students will be able to go to that conference for half price. So keep um, have people check out the Gifted Development Center website for more information about that. Where I'm doing my first book signing at the Gifted Development Center on January 25th. And if any of these listeners are from Colorado or are able to drive to Colorado and be there at 5 o'clock at our center on the 25th. We would love to give you a tour and to share with you not only Giftedness 101, but also Off the Charts, which is a book. uh, It's on asynchrony, and uh, some of the writers in that volume will be there at the book signing. And uh, I'm hoping that I'll have copies of my other book, Upside Down Brilliance, The Visual Spatial Learner, in time for the book signing. And there's another new book. um, It's called Picture It, Teaching Visual Spatial Learners. And the authors of that book will be doing a book signing that night as well. That's uh, Betty Maxwell and Crystal Punch. So if any of your listeners can be with us then, we would love it. Wonderful. And they can also find you on uh, the Gifted Development Centers on Facebook and Twitter as well. Is that right? Right. Wonderful. We are so honored to have you back again with us, Linda. We're um, excited about your book. And And thank you so much, Diane, and thank you, Becky. I'm looking forward to seeing the two of you, I hope, at the World Council Conference. Oh, yes. I hope so, absolutely. We're looking forward to that as well. And we um, we just want to remind our listeners as we come to a close here again to um, remember to check out our sponsor, Mayor Johnson, for all of their educational solutions. That's at mayorjohnson.com. We're very thankful that they're um, wanting to sponsor our program this evening. 
because um, this is certainly an important topic and your work, um, we hope that we continue to help promote this important work that you've done too. I know you've worked very hard at it. And how do you spell mayor? Mayor, M-A-Y-E-R. Okay. M-A-Y-E-R Johnson. I'll be sure to check it out. Dot com. Yes, they have some wonderful um, educational solutions and um, just all kinds of resources. So they are a wonderful sponsor of the Coffee Clatch, and we are very thankful um, for this program as well and um, just wish you a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too, ladies. Take good care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh, oh.